We um, appreciate all the efforts that our worship people do for us, the band, the singers, every week. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And um, I know when you think about that, you realize it. Uh, but I wanted us to be reminded today that they uh, serve us well every week. So I'm very, very grateful. And all, all the guys back there at the board. So thank you. So we are talking about being church and kind of what goes into that. Part of what goes into that is boldness. We've been talking about boldness the last couple of weeks. And uh, we defined that last week to say that boldness looks like saying something when I don't have to for the cause of Christ to be meaningful to others on behalf of God. It looks like uh, taking advantage of opportunities, leveraging them to do something in the name of Christ for other people, and even creating those kinds of opportunities. Remember? So uh, I'm not going to circulate among you today to kind of get uh, some of the stories out there, but let me just see. Anything kind of of the bold nature happened this past week that you'd say, yep, yep. Anybody? A few of you? Cool. Appreciate seeing and hearing that. All right. Well, today we're talking about how the church is controversial. Now, uh, some of you have had church experiences in the past that were controversial, and it wounded you deeply. It hurt you. Uh, it may have even derailed you so that you left church for some period of time. Maybe you've even darkened the door today for the first time in a long time. And you're our guest today. And, and you've come just taking a little risk, sticking your neck out to see, okay, I'll give it one more shot. Is it worth it? So uh, we're going to talk about what's up with controversy. Why does that happen? And what are we supposed to think about that on an individual as well as a collective basis. Uh, we've been saying, uh, you have to remember, when we're talking about church and we're doing so in the biblical sense, we're not talking per se about the institution. We're not talking about a building. We're not talking about all the traditions and the offices and the officers and all that kind of thing. We're talking about a movement, how God has penetrated this world through a group of people who have given and yielded their lives to him. And in that movement has brought transformation and change impact to this world. When you begin to look at the birth of the church that happened a little over 2000 years ago, and it's mostly recorded in the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, the fifth book of the New Testament. And by the way, I'm going to be reading from there in just a moment in chapter eight and chapter 15, if you want to go ahead and find that. When you when you read that account of how the church just kind of exploded on the scene uh, if you're looking at that as a historian and, and you see here's this obscure little country called Israel on the corner of the Roman Empire where nothing really matters as far as world events is concerned. And some religious guy uh, dies, maybe unjustly, and some of his followers kind of radically claim he came back from the grave and he lives again. When you're looking at that just historically, you're going, how did that thing perpetuate itself? How did it ever get out of the first century, much less carry on to the next 20 centuries with such world impact that it has had? How do you explain the beginnings of the history of the church? Well, 
you have to kind of give a tip of the hat, a little nod to spiritual explanations. Because practically, sociologically, anthropologically, it doesn't make sense that this thing has gone on and on and perpetuated as it has. I mean, even the most objective would have to say there's got to be something extraordinary, something mysterious, maybe something divine about that. And, of course, that is the claim that you find in the scriptures, that this was a God thing. When Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, within a couple of months, there was a religious holiday called Pentecost that Peter gets up, gives a little 10-minute message. 3,000 people in one day begin to follow Christ. And just a few days later, when uh, some turmoil happens around a guy that gets healed just outside the gate of the temple, and Peter again gets up and gives about a 10-minute message, you know, 5,000 men are said to have responded. And so all of a sudden, within a matter of days, there are over 10,000 followers of Jesus in a day in which Jerusalem might have had about 100,000 population. So, boom, all of a sudden, more than 10% of the population are followers of Jesus. And this is upsetting the apple cart, as it were. There was this delicate balance, this delicate dance between Rome and Israel. Rome wanted to maintain the peace throughout the entire empire. Israel wanted to maintain some sense of autonomy and religious expression. A lot of latitude was cut by Rome to Israel to be able to do that. And now this man, Jesus, is crucified. He's crucified by Roman officials. And so as this whole uprising begins to happen, it seems like Rome is on the wrong side of that issue. And Rome crucified Jesus at the instigation of Jewish religious leaders. And so they seem to be on the wrong side of this whole uprising. And so they are both concerned about what's happening in this little corner, this little obscure part of the Roman Empire. And they decide we've got to stomp this thing out. We've got to stop this thing before it gets really underway and before it creates more of a problem than it's worth. And so, as you may recall, they uh, arrested the apostles. Those 12 apostles who had been following Jesus and begun to preach Jesus and were seeing all these multitudes of people followed, they arrested them. An angel miraculously set them free. They went right back to the temple and began to preach Jesus again. They got arrested again. And this time they're flogged. They're beaten within inches of their life. And they are ordered without any question, don't speak of Jesus and this resurrection again. And they go right back to it. Declaring, how privileged are we that we could suffer for the sake of Jesus? Friends, you can't historically explain that. There's something extraordinary going on in the lives of those men that would say, Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we've just had to suffer for you. Well, that uh, persecution began to do what Jesus said he wanted to have happen in Acts 1 8. 
You remember what happened in Acts 1-8? Jesus uh, said to his followers at that point, I want you going throughout all of Judea. I want you going throughout all of Samaria. I want you to go all over the world and be witnesses to what you have seen in this resurrection. I want you to tell everybody about what God's up to and how the kingdom of God is on the move. And so this persecution began to do that. It dispersed these believers. It was as if somebody went and kicked over an anthill and the ants just began to scurry everywhere. And they went over and kicked over another anthill and they all began to scurry everywhere. That's the way it happened with these believers. They were, by persecution, being knocked over, getting up, and just going all over the world. Except for the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. And a great persecution began to happen with the church in Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't just the apostles that were telling this good news, telling this gospel, telling about this resurrection. Uh, A number of other, if you want to call them lay people, if you want to call them deacons, because in chapter 6, that's where they're first commissioned as deacons, began to do the same thing. And one of these guys was a guy named Stephen, who was extraordinarily effective in, in telling the story of Jesus. Multitudes were coming to Christ because of Stephen's influence and Stephen's telling of the story. And so now the authorities are leaving the apostles alone and they're going after these lay guys. And they capture Stephen and they sentence him to die. And it's a fascinating read to read chapter 7 of Acts. Where he, in this eloquent retelling of all of the Jewish history that comes all the way up to Jesus and then through Jesus. And then upon finishing that last statement... He is stoned to death. People circle around him and hurl rocks at him until he dies. It's brutal. It's gruesome. It's awful. And the guy gasps his last breath and dies. And we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that there's a guy there who is consenting to all of this. And we're introduced... To Saul, who becomes the singularly most important person in the New Testament after Jesus. So look with me, if you will, at chapter 8, verse 1. The end of chapter 7 is the stoning of Stephen and the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul, and that's his Hebrew name, his Roman or Greek name, Paul is the one you know him by best. Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, as you continue through chapter 8 and chapter 9, you see that, Paul, that Saul, who later becomes Paul, is this rising star amongst the Jewish community. Uh, as, a, as a Jewish rabbi kind of figure and, and uh, religious leader. And he's leading the charge of this persecution against the church. And he finally comes to this point. So many of them have scattered, and, and great numbers of them have gone north to this major city up north called Damascus. He goes to the council and he says, Why don't you give me written papers of authority and send me to Damascus? And there I will suppress the believers that have, that have gathered in Damascus. And they go, Oh, this is a great idea. 
So they give him the authorization. They write up those papers. They send him to Damascus. You get into chapter 9, and Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christians there, and Jesus shows up. And in this glaring, blaring, bright light, Paul is just felled on the road in blindness. He's perplexed, he's confused, he has no idea what's going on, and suddenly he hears Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's confused about all this, and and, and Jesus explains as he's persecuting the church, he's persecuting Jesus. And he says, I've got a plan for you. And I want you to go on to Damascus, and there it will all be explained to you. And so Saul is led, because he's blind now, to Damascus. And he's staying in some guy's house. And meanwhile, God begins to approach one of uh, the followers of Jesus, a guy by the name of Ananias. And he says, now Ananias... Saul is in town. I know you've heard of him. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard of him. He's persecuting the church everywhere, and I heard he'd come here to persecute the church. And Jesus says, but I've got great plans for him. And so I want you to go over to where he's staying. He's staying in so-and-so's house over on such-and-such street. It's a remarkable little verse of specificity. When you, when you look at the book of Acts and you go, is this just like religious material? There, there's reference after reference after reference that makes it read like history. It's historical in nature. So that he even gives a guy's name and a, and a house address for Ananias to go over, and there he will find Saul. Now, I'm not uh, sure, but I, my bet would be Ananias didn't really want to go. So let, let's just remind ourselves, God often asks us to do things we don't want to do. All right? And so here goes Ananias. He goes over to Saul, and he lays his hands on Saul And prays for Saul. And the Bible says it was like cataracts or scales or something were over his eyes. It was just like they fell off and Saul could see again. And his heart was converted. And he began to believe in Jesus. And he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And he spends some time in Damascus. Soaking in all of Jesus that he can and all the study of scriptures in light of who Jesus is as he can. And then we're told he he later gets a private time with Peter and with John and James and some of the other apostles. And then we're told he actually goes off to a desertous type area for 14 years. Just to saturate himself in the scriptures in the purposes of God, allowing God to do all the transforming things that God wants to do in his life. Okay, so if you're still tracking with the years, you know, about 14 years later, he comes back on the scene. And he goes to a little town called Antioch, which is up north from Jerusalem also. And there's a a thriving Christian community there. And there he meets up a guy by the name of Barnabas. And they begin this kind of partnering and fellowshipping kind of thing. The next thing you know, in chapter 13, all the plans that Jesus had had for Saul are now released. He commissions Saul 
slash Paul and Barnabas to go off to various parts of the world to plant churches. And then in the book of Acts, you get into all these stories of Paul and, and Barnabas going all over the known world at that time. And with every little stop, with every little city, they're finding people who will follow Jesus and they're starting churches. Church after church after church after church. And this is all in the Gentile world. They'll begin it with a few Jewish believers. And then a, a lot of Gentiles will come along, non-Jewish people. And they got church after church after church all over the known world in that time. Now, every time Paul would conclude these missionary journeys and the planting of these churches, these churches, they're brand new churches. There's a lot of stuff to figure out about how, how are we supposed to be? I mean, how do we continue this movement that God's doing? How do we relate to one another? And so Paul starts writing these letters to these churches to explain how they are to conduct themselves. And, of course, we've collected 14 of those that are in our New Testament where Paul is giving instructions about how to be church, how to be the people of God. And in one of those passages, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he tells them, by the way, explicitly, this is what the gospel is. Don't lose what the gospel is. The gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6 is summarized in this way. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said he would do. Jesus was buried. Jesus, and that's what you do with dead people, you bury them. Jesus was buried, and then Jesus was raised up on the third day and resurrected to live forevermore. That's the gospel. And they began to share the gospel across their cities. City after city, church sharing gospel across the city. Okay, you staying with me? In all of this, we're told that Jesus had appeared to Peter in a resurrected state. He had appeared to all the apostles. On one occasion, he appears to 500 believers who have gathered in one place. Then later, he appears to his brother, James. So there are multiple resurrection appearances. There's this phenomenal explosion of the church. Congregations are beginning. Ecclesias, little gatherings of, of followers of Christ, are gathering all over the world. They're all on this gospel missional thing. And the world is being transformed. And all of that happens with a great deal of controversy. Outside the church. Now, let me just clarify where we're going with this today. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misstatement about what church is today, we're trying to get some clarity. You see, we, have, we live in a culture today that wants to say, okay, be church. Just be quiet. Just keep it to yourself. Just have your own little personal experience about God and about Jesus and whatever you want to believe. Just don't tell me about it. Just don't force it upon me. And the fact of the matter is, it has never been that way. The church has always been a movement where... By sharing the gospel and seeing people follow after Jesus, the kingdom of God expands. So that the kingdom of God is in more and more and more places. The influence of God. 
the purposes of God, the ways of God, the values of God, the presence of God. And so I'm sorry, culture. I'm sorry, world. But it has always been a movement that has been out there. And we cannot and we will not keep it to ourselves. And friends, when we cannot and do not keep it to ourselves, it is controversial. With some number of people, it strikes a note in their heart and God does a saving work for them. And for some number of other people, they get riled up about it. Their hearts get hard about that and they oppose it and they resist it. Now, you understand that that's going on around us all the time. And if you seek to simply avoid controversy and be secret agent Christian and nobody knows, you are missing what God's up to. You are missing the movement. You are missing the mission. You are missing the power of God. You've got some little religious thing that may make you feel better from time to time, but it's not the life that Christ came to give you. Now, case in point, um, there's an annual conference for leaders that's put on every August by a church out of Chicago. Uh, It's been going on for, I don't know, 16, 17 years. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. And and I've, I've attended many, many times. I didn't go this year. I didn't go last year, but I've gone many times. And basically, it's just a time to learn leadership. And so some of the best leaders in the world are brought to this conference And they're leaders in business, they're leaders in technology, they're leaders in the athletic arena or whatever. They're not necessarily believers, not necessarily Christians. They spring in this high caliber level of leaders and leaders get to learn from leaders. One of the program people this year was a guy named Howard Schultz. Who knows who he is? Yeah, you better if you live in Seattle. So the CEO of Starbucks was invited. He's not a believer in Jesus. He was invited to this conference to just speak about leadership and how that plays out at Starbucks. That's the kind of program personnel they have every year. A few days before the conference, Schultz pulls out. And he pulls out simply and only because this church that sponsors the conference has a ministry in their church that helps homosexuals that don't want to be homosexual anymore come out of that lifestyle. And so this little uh, activist group began a petition to tell Howard Schultz, if you go and speak at that conference, we will boycott all the Starbucks stores in America. I think all in all, they got about 700 people to sign the petition, but it was sufficient to get Schultz's attention, and he pulled out. Now, nowhere was homosexuality a part of the conference. Nowhere was it a part of the agenda to address. Uh, Nowhere does this church in Chicago make a big deal about it. They have a ministry that meets on a weeknight for people that want to leave that lifestyle. But the reality today is if you don't toe the line on the message of that group, and give it all the full acceptance that they claim that they deserve, then you are considered hateful. So I have a, uh, and, and uh, 
The ministry that the church in Chicago partners with is an international ministry called Exodus. I have a good friend who a few years ago wanted to get out of the homosexual lifestyle, and Exodus was very, very meaningful to him. And he was able to to leave that lifestyle and move forward with Christ in his life in some very wholesome, healed kinds of ways. And, and, you know, if this message is online and somebody is trying to highlight whoever mentions the name Exodus, you know, we could be pinpointed for that, for me just mentioning it today. And that's just one issue out of a thousand that we could mention that get people sideways with us about the gospel. Which is what? That Jesus died, was buried, raised, and appeared. There are a thousand issues out there that if we don't line up with those issues the way our world wants us to line up with them, they will seek to stomp out our message. And so I freshly ask you, do you believe the message? Is it a true message? Is it a message that has gripped your heart and begun to change your life? Is it a message that because Jesus is alive, not only in this world, but in your heart, you have a compelling to make the message known anywhere and everywhere for those who would want to follow Christ as well? If that's who you are, then you are church. And if you are church, you will have controversy outside of the church. It just goes with the territory. But what we also find out in today's text is that there's not only controversy that happens outside of the church, there is controversy that happens inside the church. And we're going to get over to chapter 15 for this. But as it turns out, inside the church, there was a question about who can be church? Who can be a part of the the movement, the following of Christ? And what we're going to get into with that issue is the reason some of you left church. Some of you have a story where at some point you you had been a part of church and then something happened and you left or abandoned or gave up on church and some of you have come back to church. And what we're going to talk about is a primary reason that a lot have left church, that a lot have been wounded by church, that a lot have disillusionment about church. And it is that issue about who should get to be a part of the church. Now, there's no question. When you begin to follow Jesus... There is a transformation that begins to happen on your life that results in behavioral change. It changes your life or it's not real. And when these changes begin to happen and these behavioral differences begin to to be more firmly placed in you, it's a way of glorifying God that you live this new life, this new morality, if you will, that's like the life of Jesus. Now, how much of that has to be in place before you follow Jesus? That's the question. And in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be a little PG for just about five minutes, and so some of you parents may have a little conversation when you go home later with your kids. 
But uh, in, in Acts chapter 15, there was a very uh, Jewish background group of Christians who said, now, wait a minute, before you can be a follower of Jesus, you have to be circumcised. Now let's look at the text in chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. So you see, some Pharisees had even become Christ followers. But they brought all their Pharisaical baggage in the door with them. And so some believers who also belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, you know, it's like this big mother church is in Jerusalem, and then you have all these other churches on the outlying areas. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas are up, as we said, the city of Antioch. It's a great church and movement that's going on there. And you have some of these more legalistically minded believers travel to Antioch one time and see, gosh, there's a lot of Gentiles. There's a lot of non-Jewish people that are becoming followers of Christ. It's not like it is in Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, by and large, the churches are made up of non-Jewish people. And, and so many of these church members have not been circumcised. I'm not sure how they knew that, but somehow they knew, you know, that you had these large numbers of people that had not gone through that particular rite or, or step. And so they're claiming you have to follow Moses before you can follow Jesus. And this raises a, a pretty strong controversy. And so Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch and they come to Jerusalem to talk about it. Now you've got Paul and Barnabas. You've got all the apostles, and you've got the pastor of the Jerusalem church there, a guy named James, who's the brother of Jesus. And as you get into chapter 15, we're not going to read all of it, we're going to read some of it. You're going to see this was no small disputation. I mean, they went at it in a pretty intense, a pretty heated kind of way. And different people at different points in the conversation stand up. And, and make a stand about the issue as best they know how, uh, keeping in harmony with what the weight of Scripture would seem to advocate about that. So, as we continue in verses 7 through 9, after there had been much debate, it's all truncated right there, so you don't know all that took place, let your imagination, a lot of debate, a lot of back and forth. Peter stood up. And he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, we didn't read that story in chapter 10. 
But that's where God had had a little encounter with Peter while Peter was having a little prayer. And he said, uh, don't call the Gentiles unclean. What I make clean is clean. I want you to go to a guy's name, Cornelius, and I want you to answer some questions that he has about Jesus. Peter did. Cornelius and his entire household came to faith. So Peter says, you know all about that story. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, just take a quick time out there. Here's what Peter says. You know the story of how I went and got involved with Cornelius. Now, let's remind ourselves, and this has been true throughout all of history. Relating rightly to God has always been a matter of the heart. And there's nobody in the universe that knows the heart except God. Now, we know behavior. We know how people act. But God knows the heart. And we have to conclude that God knew the heart of these Gentiles who said they wanted to follow Jesus. And that God accepted their commitment. How do you know that? Because God gave them the Holy Spirit. Now, he wouldn't have given them the Holy Spirit and all the evidences that uh, are, are manifest when the Holy Spirit becomes a part of a person's life. That wouldn't have happened unless they had legitimately in their heart, by faith, turned to follow Christ. Now, this conversation and this debate continues. Pick it up verse 10. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. Now, what happened? What did he just say? He said, when you start talking about the law... And by the way, the law is not just the Ten Commandments that we have familiarity with and probably appreciation for. But the law was like over 600. It was like 613 different rules and regulations that people had to keep following the ways of Moses in order to make their lives right with God. He said, now, you know, we weren't even able to keep all 613 commandments. Why would we put that on Gentile followers of Jesus? Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. It was a pregnant moment. They were getting what he was saying. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul now get up and they talk about all the Gentiles that they've seen come to faith. And as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. And then James replies. Now, we've got to pause here and just think about James for a moment. And I've already identified him a couple of times. We're talking about the brother of Jesus. If there's ever a case for faith, if you haven't read that book, James is that case for faith. I mean, think you guys that have siblings. You grow up all your life with your sibling. And then one day your sibling says, by the way, I'm the son of God. You're like, no, I'm sorry. I know you. I saw how you treated mom and dad. I saw how you treated me. I'm sorry. That just doesn't work. But James has become a full, wholehearted follower of Jesus and the first pastor of the Jerusalem church because he had this 
exposure to Christ around the time of the crucifixion. And he met with Jesus in the, re- in the after resurrection. <coughs> Gosh, I'm too excited. So hopefully you're still with me. I know I'm giving you a lot of history. (coughs) So anyway, James then stands up. And he says, verse 13, after they finish speaking, James replies, brothers, Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, that's Peter, to take them from people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And he goes on to talk about how there's also historical precedence for this. In conclusion, let me catch up to where we're talking about. James says we should not make it difficult for people to come to Christ. We should not make it burdensome. I mean, just the whole believing in the resurrection is challenging enough. Let's not put the 613 laws of Moses on them as well. And he said with that, but I will grant you a couple of concessions, okay? Let's do say to the Gentiles, would you please... As you're coming to faith, to faith in Christ, as you're also becoming a part of this movement in the church, would you please not be offensive to Jewish sensitivities? You can continue to read the verses, but what he gets into is meat that has been offered to idols as sacrifices. Jews would never touch that meat, never consume that meat because it was contaminated. As far as they were concerned, it had been offered to an idol. And then... Meat that had not been drained of all the blood after an animal had been killed. And so it's just a couple of obscure examples from history. But the point is, this is very offensive to Jews. Would you guys just, you know, be careful about your behavior around Jews and not unnecessarily offend them? And would you abstain from sexual immorality? This pleased Paul and Barnabas. They go back to Antioch and read this letter of James to the rest of the congregation there. And it pleased all that were there. And the church was able to move forward with a sense of harmony around the mission. Now, I say all that to say this. Friends, there's always going to be controversy if you're the true people of God. There's always going to be controversy outside of the church and inside of the church. Inside of the church, sometimes it's very significant, weighty matters. Sometimes it's insignificant, petty things. But the point is, we have to press through. We have to, as we were singing a moment ago, we've got to be one. We've got to press forward to the point that we can accept one another, love one another, move forward together with one another. And if there's anything that we've been picking up out of all of these weeks that we've been in the series, it's this. First, There's always going to be a tendency for the church to shift its focus from outsiders to insiders. And we have to guard our hearts against the drift toward being an inside-focused group rather than an outside-focused people. Secondly, 
we must always avoid a drift toward law, toward rules and regulations, toward policies and procedures that takes us away from grace. Now, for those of us that are Gentile in orientation, and that's about 99% of us in the room today, we look at that historical story about, gosh, you wanted them to follow the 613 rules of Moses before they could follow Jesus? That's absurd. But if you have been a part of a church for 10 years or more, you have these proclivities. You do get to a point where you begin to want people to own up to some of the behaviors that you've adopted as a follower of Christ. And you can begin to give them a hard time, whether it's just inside your head or it actually comes outside of your life, because they haven't measured up yet. Now, I grew up in a church culture in the South. And in that church culture and in my local congregation that I was a part of as a youth, you did not drink, you did not dance, and it wasn't true for my church, but for the, some of the churches around us, you did not smoke, you did not go to movies, you did not play cards, and you did not go to swimming pools where uh, guys and gals swam together. And 2,300 miles away from that and 35 years removed from that, you're going, oh, that's pretty crazy. But that's where it was. Because after a while, the drift is toward rules, regulations, policies, procedures, rather than dealing with people as people, rather than dealing with others relationally, rather, rather than dealing conversationally with some very sticky things. Not a few times people have said to me, would a gay person be welcomed at Meadowbrook? I'm sorry, you even have to ask the question. Absolutely, Yes. Do I disagree with some things about that lifestyle? Absolutely, yes. Do I care about that person? Do I want to know that person? Do I want to have some relationship with that person? Absolutely, yes. Do I have a hope that they can meet up with Christ and, and, and know Him forever? Absolutely, yes. And so, do I have some hopes that some things would happen and, and transpire? Yeah, I do. But I'm not going to let those things prevent me from engaging them relationally, conversationally, lovingly. And so we want to be respectful of the law, of the rules, of the ways of God. We want to bring our lives into obedience and into alignment with all that God is and, and is about. But meanwhile, as others around us are not on that track, we want to extend a lot of grace. A lot of grace, a lot of grace, and not drift toward legalism. And the third thing I'll say is that we want to guard against drifting toward preserving what we have rather than advancing the kingdom. And here's what's true about the church. There's a big movement in America going on right now in the Christian community to plant new churches. And the reason is because, one, the non-Christ following part of our country is growing much faster than the Christ following part of our country. 
And that concerns us and we care about people knowing Christ and having life with Him forever. But in addition to that, there's this focus on church planting because statistically, church plants reach more people more quickly than longer established churches. And why is that? One of the big reasons is because longer established churches get caught up in preserving what they have rather than advancing the cause. And when this church began 21 years ago, we didn't have anything. There was nothing to preserve. And so all we were about was advancing the cause, advancing the kingdom. We've been around 21 years now. This is a kind of nice room, isn't it? We've been blessed with a nice tool, this facility. We have uh, some long-serving staff and long-serving other leaders. And if we get sidetracked to how do we preserve, how do we keep what we've got, how do we maintain the peace and the fellowship and all this kind of stuff, rather than advance the kingdom, share the gospel, continue the movement, see the acts of God take place, be bold. And make mistakes along the way. Friends, if we're not making any mistakes, we're not sticking our neck out. And so we must guard ourselves. If there's anything we picked up in these first 15 chapters against drifting toward insiders rather than outsiders, against drifting more toward law rather than grace, and against drifting more toward preservation rather than advancement. So let me conclude with this. Will you build your life on Jesus? It's about the fourth week in a row I've asked you that. It's not because I don't know a better question to ask. Friends, this is just where it's at. This is the key. This is the heart. This is the bedrock, the foundation of it all. Not Jesus plus my career, my finances, my health, my my family. Just you build it on Him And you trust Him about all these other things that are also important, but lesser important. Will you be bold? This is not a time for safe Christianity, for secret agent Christianity. The movement of God and the kingdom of God is active and alive. It is still exploding around this world, just not in North America. We've become timid, safe, prosperous, preserving things that we have. Will you be full of grace? I know you have strong convictions. I know that the way our culture is engaged in some of this stuff really, you know, can set you off sometimes. But will you also be full of grace? Will you be open-handed? Sharing. Giving away. Holding loosely the things that God's entrusted to us. So that they don't become too big, too important. Let's pray together. Father, we have sung 
nice songs, prayed nice prayers, read nice scriptures. And God, we do not want to settle for just being a nice people. We want to be your people. We want to be your missionary agent in this world. We want to be church. And so we call, we plead, we pray. Have your will and your way with us. Stir us. Break us. Mold us. You're the potter. We're the clay. Make, it, make us after your will and your way. In Jesus' name, amen.